Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are listening. Hello, Zach. So when you're hello Tim, uh, when you're thinking about buying a new product or using a new service, what are some of the steps that you take to pull the trigger and and decide to use it? I like. Well, I think that I'm a pretty early adopter for one. Um, but I take a lot into consideration from people I know and trust in their in their testimonial. If they if they say it's if they're on board with it, then it's much easier for me to be on board with it. How about you? I'll typically uh, I'll look at um, reviews. I'll look at the the positive reviews and I'll look at a couple of the negative reviews and uh, kind of look in between. How about you? You? Know you know what's interesting about reviews is that uh, a lot of people buy them on the uh, on the Fiverr. If you were to like look at Fiverr for reviews, people pay mm -hmm. someone to do a review. So it's a very weird uh, thing to be a part of. Um, I, I don't know. And that's why I was asking you like what you do yeah. to, to buy things. Because if I go to a restaurant, I might ask the waitress or the waiter or, or the bartender and say, hey, well, what do you recommend? And if yeah. it's in my wheelhouse, I'll take that. Um, but people, but, you know, so, but people got to, you have to earn my trust though, before I will just start not so much blindly, but blindly accept recommendations. Like, especially when it comes to like TV shows or anything to, to watch, it's like, we, I have to make sure that we are like seeing eye to eye on everything before. Cause like, as uh, once you lose once I lose your trust on, uh, recommending some nonsense, then, uh, it's, it's hard to get back up on that horse. Maybe caveat it with like, oh, hey, like this is going to be ridiculous. However, would I say that because, you know, the we talked a lot early start businesses. Some of them have great adoption rates. Some of them don't. Uh, and getting people to trust them and to, to jump on board with them is, is something that I think is a uh, could be a difficult thing for, for many, many people. And it's I'm, I'm always just interested in how people uh, deal with getting people to, to acquire whatever it is that they're, they're selling. Yeah. Well, this, as we welcome our guests today, this, this to me, I, I have the privilege to, to hearing some of the, the backstory and, and we'll get into it during the show. I was on the, uh, the interview panel for 757 accelerate. So I, I got to hear this. And, and when I, when I heard about this business, this is this is a business that would be really really easy for me to adopt. So like, let oh. me can I tee, can I tee this up? You'll for never a second? have to. Well, right, but like, so I'll tee this up real quick in the sense of what if you sat down at the dentist chair and you you knew that you had a, a pain in your tooth, and so and then the dentist was like, yeah, you, you have a cavity, and then. Next thing you know, they pull out this this hand cranked drill so that they could drill your your tooth so that to, to get the cavity out. I mean, like anybody that see, would see something like that would just like immediately get up and run for the door and never look back. And this is this is a very similar product replacing a hand cranked drill. And then you, you you throw your brain and your skull into the mix, and it's just like. That that's the standard today. That just is is crazy to me. 
So with that, we we have our our <laughs> our guest today to wow. uh, to drill to drill into some cool conversation, right? There you go. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Tim Ryan, the comedian. Well, no, but I, it's just one of those things, you know. So, Casey, welcome to the show. We want Thank we you. can't wait to get into. It's good to I see guess. you again. Yeah, let's just jump right into it. Let's just talk about the product that you provide, and it's just fascinating to me that this is that the standard is still so antiquated in my mind. Sure. I mean, um, you basically gave the intro for me. Um, <laughs> the most common neurosurgical procedure out there is drilling a hole through the skull. And the only or the standard of care for emergencies right now is I've propped is this hand crank drill. So this is the drill that is used all over the world in every single hospital, this particular one from Northwestern Hospital, but it's not unique at all. Um, the problem with it is that not only is it a two-handed procedure, but it's wobbly and there's nothing to prevent it from drilling into the brain, which is what you don't want to happen. And then not an emergency. It's they terrifying. Use, yeah, it's, I, I should pause for effect or something. I'm, <laughs> but, well, um, so, so Zach, now you, you, so you see, I mean, it's just like, if you knew that you had to have your, your melon drilled into and someone pulled out, you, I mean, it's just crazy. I would say, put me to sleep first, whatever that, <laughs> yeah, please. Oh my gosh. It, you're right. Wow. And because the, the patient is awake, correct? Yes. They are some, they are, they're sometimes awake. So if it's an emergency and you're doing it, in the ICU, um, they don't put you under anesthesia. But what's Granted, a normal? So sorry. So you said it's number. It's the number one procedure. Some of that. Like what? What is that procedure? Like what? What are people getting their their skull uh, drilled into? Because yeah, it's called a ventriculostomy or um, or external ventricular drain procedure or craniotomy is the word you use just for the actual placement of the burr hole. Um, you would get this procedure done if let's say you have a stroke or an aneurysm or traumatic brain injury, which is causing um, an excess buildup of fluid, a swelling in your brain. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's generally why you would get this hand crank drill because it's an emergency. There's no time to waste. They're doing this procedure while the patient is awake in the ICU. So that's outside of an operating room. Um, and then it's also done very often in the operating room on I don't think the word's elective because it's still a required procedure, but they have a little bit more time to book and prep the OR. Um, and that could be for all, all sorts of reasons. They, um, for people with brain cancer, they'll deliver chemotherapy directly into the brain, um, deep brain electrode placement for epilepsy, uh, thermal laser ablation for brain tumors. I mean, I could, the list goes on. So there's many use cases. I'm terrified. <laughs> now, granted, in the operating room, they have other options. They, they still use the hand crank drill in the OR um, as well, but they have other options for high-speed power drills, um, which have much better ease of use. The problem is they also don't stop automatically every time. Um, so there's still need for that kind of very basic safety feature in the OR as well. 
What? <laughs> is 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 the person's head like strapped down? Um. Yeah. It well. It the the. I don't even want to go to a chiropractor. On. Right. And so like, I can't imagine that. Like I might jerk the other way. You got this hand drill going. Ah, man, this, I have nothing to say. This is wild. So in the OR, the patient's under general anesthesia. So they are not, their head's not strapped down in the ICU. When the patient's awake, their body is strapped down. But remember that the patient's in very critical condition. So it's not, um, they're not fully alert typically. And so, were you going through medical school, or, or what, what? 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 When did the light bulb go off for you to say there, there's there's a better way of doing this? That this became your life journey. Yeah. Um, so for me, I um, have a ton of family members, like many, who have suffered from Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. So I was aware that there was a lot of antiquity in neurology and neurosurgery. Um, And so I knew that I always wanted to go into some kind of device or therapeutic development. Um, I wanted to be more on like the engineering building side of things. Um, When I was in college, I met a neurosurgeon, a neurosurgeon named Amit, who um, was full time working at Northwestern Hospital at the time, getting his MBA at night. And he was the one who got connected with me um, and said, hey, I use this hand crank drill every single day and it's horrible. It's, you know, antiquated. I heard he used that word, but it, it is, um, and it can be really dangerous. So we said, if you can come up with some kind of solution to it, you can run with it. But I, I just want this problem. Can I backtrack for just a second? I'm just curious when, when someone's using the hand crank drill, how long, do, how long does that take? to get through to the other side of the skull? I mean, it depends. Um, anywhere from like a few minutes to 15 to 20. Oh my um, it should not take 15 to 20, but if it's an inexperienced user, which it often is, uh, this oh. procedure is typically performed by first and second year trainees, um, like fresh out of med school, or by nurse practitioners, physician assistants, um, then it can take longer um, and is, they're, they're going slow and being hesitant. Is it always done in the same part of the, the skull so that if you do accidentally go too far and, and you go into the brain that it, there's no damage that you hit? A, I don't know. I, I, I'm way out of my knowledge base now, but like a, a fatty part of the brain or something that you're not going to hit any <laughs> receptors or whatnot? Um, it is typically done in one part of the brain on or the one part of the skull called Coker's point, which is like right here. Um, It's not always done there. It's done all over. Unfortunately, there is not anywhere you can do it that doesn't have cerebral cortex below where you're drilling. So no matter what, if you plunge into the brain, that's like your high functioning. uh, You need that. Once you drill a hole into a bone, well, are Oh, this is the, I'm gonna I'm act really stupid now. Okay, uh, the brain is a bone, or the skull is a bone, correct? Yeah. And do bones when they um, 
bones can grow back, right? So so if you put a hole into the skull, will that hole move back or is it you got to hold the rest of your life? How does that work? You typically have a hole the rest of your life. Um, it's not a very big hole, um, except for when it is. If it's a big enough hole, so it, if it's a five millimeter diameter hole, which is like the typical ventriculostomy hole, um, then you just suture the scalp back over it when you're done with the procedure and the person just has a hole in their skull and it's, it's fine. If it's big, um, so for example, sometimes they'll do a craniectomy, which is where you drill three holes and then remove a triangle of the skull because you need a ton of access. You need to be able to see the whole part of the brain. Then they install a, a skull plate, which is, you know, like medical grade material um, that covers that, that triangle. All right. Well, um, swell. <laughs> this is this is, is very fascinating. The the medical world seems to be one that I think most people agree with that is too expensive and is is odd that like um, everyone agrees that like you want to help people, you want to fix them, stuff like that. But like, it's, it seems really hard to, to break into in, in many cases. It seems, uh, again, really expensive. Uh, so like, why, why are medical devices, um, surgeries, drugs, like all that stuff, why is that so expensive when it seems like the actual cost of it shouldn't be like I, I'm just looking. Like I'm looking at the the Hubley uh, site right now, right? And I don't know anything about the ins and outs of of what it takes, but I could imagine me being, you know, the owner of a hospital and having to pay, you know, a million dollars for this drill, whatever you, whatever the term is that you guys use, when maybe it doesn't cost a million dollars. So like, why is stuff so expensive, and why why do you think that people are so okay with just being like? I'm just going to spend it. It's what I have to do. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of, a lot of answers and a lot of thoughts. First, um, the drill will not be a million dollars. Um, it'll be more like in the low thousands, potentially hundreds. Um, but you're absolutely right. Everything's super expensive. Um, I have a bunch of examples. This hand crank drill, you could probably make it for like, dollars i mean i'm just guessing but and, is- and for those that are listening this is like this is like if you think of a hand crank like egg beater kind of thing it's exactly you know, oh yeah they can't see me that you know that this is what it is but instead of the 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 whisks where they would mix the eggs or whatnot you hit, and then that's where it looks like an actual drill but you turn the crank uh, to turn the drill bit so and you said it's just a couple dollars to make that I'm totally guessing, but I mean, it, yeah, I would have, I would assume it would only be a few dollars. Um, the sticker price for this product is like $1,200 per kit. The reason for that Good is um, it just, it costs a lot of money to go through FDA clearance, um, following like regulatory quality standards, operational costs. Um, so that's kind of, that kind of explains it. Um, Another example is each additional day that a patient spends in the ICU, 
to recover from a surgery cost hospitals $20,000. And that's from all of, that's like from all of the, um, I don't know, the costs that are involved with having all sorts of wires and life support and stuff hooked up to the patient and then having a lot of very experienced, expensive salary personnel taking care of that patient. Um, in all honesty, medicine is pretty, it's a pretty weird space. It's pretty fun in a way in that a lot of times what is best for the world does line up with adopting new innovations. Not always, but a lot of times in general, um, like hospitals can make money by improving patient outcomes, right? Um, this is one example where I think there's just a disconnect happening, which is that this is partly an innovation problem, um, why there hasn't been a better drill. And I can talk about that and like what our tech is and everything else. Um, but it's also partly just, again, that kind of disconnect that like business case of how can you have a drill that's more expensive to make that's fancier, but ultimately the goal is to be uh, better for patients. Um, and so that's part of what we're doing here is, is both having newer technology, cooler innovation, and trying to convince hospitals that they're, they can save money through adopting this new tech. So where do you start? So I'm curious now, like um, in terms of where do you, how did you start with the prototype? Um, walk us through that. Did you, did you, start 3D printing things or, you know, how, how did that whole prototype process work? And where yeah, did you um, start? Started off with, you know, back of a napkin sketch, not literally, but probably just out of my notebook. Um, started 3D printing things, putting it together, um, like sawing and hammering with wood, coming up with different ideas of doing mechanical uh, auto stops for the drill. Um, filed our first provisional patent came up with a bunch more ideas, this time a little <laughs> through SolidWorks, um, which is a, a, a software um, where you can uh, go through building stuff before actually building it on your computer. Um, started playing around with some different CAD software, um, came up with more ideas that work in, in, on the computer. So, you know, you can like apply physics principles and then try it out. Um, via a virtual model and then print it out and try it in real life. Uh, we went through a ton of different iterations over the course of a year or two. We came up with like 10 different ways of doing the auto stop. And then we had to kind of down select from there based on how much each one costs to make. Um, and then a whole bunch of different factors. Like if there's a ton of humidity in the environment, how likely is that to affect this functionality? And of course, the answer has to be that it would not affect it. Like it has to be functional in every single environment. It has to be inexpensive to make. Uh, and that's how we came up with the auto stop that we use today. Yeah, I was going to ask. So is there like a whole, did you have to write down a whole list of these are the must have features in terms of in ter like that you had to exceed in terms of oh, auto of stop? Uh, and yep. then once once you establish that list, you're like, yeah, we can totally do this. Yeah, we are going to disrupt this market and that's just, go to work and start prototyping to see if everything fits? Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, the first step before we even started prototyping was to interview doctors, users. Um, we, I 
since I've started working on this company, um, I've interviewed close to 200 neurosurgeons. Um, but basically, each time I interview them, I ask them, I try to figure out what are the need to have, what are the nice to have. Um, and then that's how we came up with our list of features. And then for each need to have and nice to have, what are the requirements, the technical requirements? When you're when you're communicating with those neurosurgeons, is it easy to get them to respond? It, do they feel comfortable around you? You know, the, the term customer discovery uh, and, and customer interviews is probably something that has been drilled down a lot of startups. Unintended. There's unintended, yeah. Um, been drilled down a lot of startup founders' throats, if you will. And um, some of them are really good at it. Some of them are really bad at it. It sounds like you've seen success with that. Like what 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 seemed to work, what seemed to not work. Uh, I mean, these guys are these guys and gals are super busy. Um, how how do you get that to 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 see kind of the uh, results that you want? At the very beginning, I mentioned that my co-founder Amit is a neurosurgeon. Um, so at the beginning, it was easy because he just took everyone that he knew and then was like, "Go talk to Casey." <laughs> Um, you know, made, he kept making group chats with me and was like, call this person. Um, once I had to move beyond his network, which granted is very, very extensive. Um, I, I tried all, all sorts of things. Um, I, I showed up at a conference. I did not pay to attend the conference because I had no money. Um, so I, instead I, I stayed with my friend from high school's grandma in Scottsdale, Arizona. All I did was pay for the flight. I stayed with Prepper's grandma for free. Um, and then I showed up at the conference site and just like walked in confidently because <laughs> I couldn't afford to attend. And then from there, I just walked up to random people and was like, hello, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on this thing. I'd love your input. I'm looking for feedback, et cetera. Um, and I think because I, I think it, this is a case where it probably helps that I'm like a young woman because they felt bad saying no to me. Um, and I also am not super intimidating or like, I don't look like I'm trying to sell people something, which I wasn't, um, that helped. And they just assumed that I was like a med student or something. And they're like, yeah, whatever. I'll, I'll chat with you. Did Trevor's grandma cook good food? Yeah, she did. I, I love her. <laughs> I still text Eleanor to this day. I hadn't met her before cause I had never been to Arizona, but, um, yeah, we get along great. I think that, that's a, I don't, I don't know where that is and kind of like your startup pitch and things like that, but like, that's a cool story to tell. And I think most people would not be willing to, you know, stay with random grandma uh, to go to a conference, to walk in like that. You know, they would find excuses as to why they couldn't. And uh, well, see, I appreciate that. I love that. random grandmas. So that was really <laughs> like, that was the ultimate goal and the excuse was the conference. Oh, there you go. <laughs> It's, all, it's on how you present it, right? That's right. When you, if if you take a second and look back, is is the the amount of work that is needed to make this a reality? Is it on par to what your expectations were? Or if you look back, you're like, boy, if I knew it was going to be this much work, I might have thought about maybe a different device because it is way more than I expected. Mm. Um, that's a good question. I definitely, if I had known the amount of work, I definitely would still do it. Um, so no regrets there. Definitely more work than I thought, but I feel like I also maybe just didn't really have any expectations. Um, in fact, I had very low expectations for myself at the beginning because I was like, I mean, I was like 18 when that neurosurgeon first approached me. So I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'll, I'm just 
I'm just going to focus on the immediate next milestone. And I can't even, the future is like this ideal that doesn't exist yet. Um, so I went very step-by-step step in the beginning, you know, at the first, like the immediate first goal was come up with a prototype. And then after that, it was file a patent. And then after that, it was maybe get some money. So like win a pitch competition or get a grant. And then it was get an investor and then it was get more investors. And then it was hire a team. And um, at some point in there, I started being confident. And <laughs> now, now this is a full company and I can be years into the future and it's all, all going now. I mean, you're young though. I mean, you're 23. You at some point yeah. you graduate. I think you graduated from Northwestern. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I twenty. I'm thinking of when I was 23. Like, I, I think I was applying to jobs at a TV station. Like, uh, not not you know doing the stuff that you're doing. Is that something that when when did you think about not necessarily starting this business, but maybe going into your own business and and, and doing that thing? Because a lot of people. At least when I grew up, I don't think that entrepreneurial thing was um, presented as an option. It was always go work for the man and 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 do that type of thing. I know Tim is, is similar in that. Like, do you feel like your generation was taught differently? Is that because your parents owned um, a business of their own? Like, where where are you? Where did where did you learn kind of the the chops to? Hey, maybe this is something I can do. Um, definitely, my parents were part of that. Um, my dad, in particular, has always been very very encouraging. Um, for entrepreneurship. And uh, that was, I guess, always in the back of my mind. I definitely have to credit this company to my university. Um, we started out of an MBA class at Northwestern. And it was through that class where I met that neurosurgeon. And that was the professors walked us through the very early stages of starting a company. And when the class ended, you know, we got an A and whatever, and we were trying to decide next steps. And it was Again, it was the professors of the class who said, you're really onto something here. You have to continue. I have to, um, this is totally a silly question, but have you, have you received any uh, backlash at all from like, uh, or any pushback from the whole Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes uh, crazy story that went on that, uh, that you have to go the extra mile to prove yourself because you're a, a, a younger woman in this field. If, if you received, and I don't look dissimilar from her. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I guess well, I would right. have no way to tell. But I yeah. think in in the medical device field, anyone who, like all investors, VCs, entrepreneurs, physicians, they're all they all know a million like medical device people. So I don't know. I feel like Elizabeth Holmes is kind of like. Yeah, whatever. That's some kind of like infamous. I don't know. It, it, yeah, it doesn't yeah, yeah. come in my mind or in my life very often. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, because that was just <laughs> such a. I don't know. I mean, it's just there's just crazy stuff where where people will latch onto something and and use that as a way to say no or whatever. But I mean, just in the few minutes it's that we've talked today, who are not in the medical device field that always bring <laughs> bring up there enough, right? Because, I mean, just what, in the short time that we talked today, you talked about all the different milestones you hit. And, you know, that was, for those that don't know about the whole Theranos story, I mean, Elizabeth Holmes raised, you know, gosh, billions of dollars and nothing was milestone based. And it was, give me all the money up front and then I'll deliver the prize as opposed to you've identified all these different milestones. And then when you hit different milestones, then you can, you know, that gives you reason to raise more money and receive more money so that, 
people understand that you're on the right trajectory. And sure. uh, I mean, it's, so no, it it's sounds a great like point. I think that the biggest difference is that her product was not something that you could see, like it was possible right. to make up data. Ours is hardware. So I can actually show you right now, but it's like, it's easy yeah. for me to just on this call, do a demo and show you that it works. So for people listening, this is a box. <laughs> this is probably searchable <laughs> on it. Um, this is what it looks like. You get the drill out. I'll take it out. Comes in this kit. Um, and this is our Hubly Surgical Drill. So uh, do you want me to do a demo? I have a model stall here in case you ask. But it's totally it's not mine. Don't do mine. <laughs> yeah. so I, have a, I have a fake one. This, this is when we are happy that we're, uh, we do this virtually. And, uh, very much so. In, in studio. <laughs> um, cool. Well, I'll just explain. I guess now is as good a time as any to yeah. explain how it works. Um, so again, our we never had a real live demo on the show. show. I don't think this is. This is the first. Exciting. Um, awesome. Well, I'm excited to be the inaugural demo. Um, okay, so this is the Hubley drill. It's as you can see, battery powered. Um, it has an LED on the back, which is a force indicator. Um, and so I'll just go ahead and talk through as I'm. So basically, how it works is that you put it on the drill. The light will turn green when you're applying the correct amount of force, and then it'll stop automatically and the light will turn red. So, and that's it. <laughs> Again, it's super simple. And you can see on the other side that it stopped it exactly right when it broke the skull. Boy, you had a, that was a lot of, that was a fair amount of pressure just thinking that that was a skull. I mean, I think that that's what Zach is thinking at this point too, because I. <laughs> so it automatically detects that it's like a different um, material or something. And that's, I, I feel it's like I've seen actually, things like. Yeah. So it, it's not about the different material. So this is part of that kind of innovation challenge that I was talking about earlier, where other companies Medtronic, Stryker, J&J, &J, they have tried to do some kind of auto stop in drilling before. Cause there's, that's like a very, very clear demand that most orthopedic and neurosurgeons say that they want. Um, the problem is the obvious answer to it is to have a pressure sensing system. And the problem with pressure sensing is that bone varies greatly in density and thickness across patient populations and then also within one patient. So for example, the skull has three layers to it. Um, the inner and outer cortices, which have different densities, and then there's a layer of cartilage in between. So you can either have a pressure sensing drill that um, accounts for the cartilage, and then sometimes it confuses the brain for cartilage and drill too far, or you or you don't account for it, and then it stops too early. Um, and so ours is not based on material for that reason, or pressure sensing. Ours is based on resistance. So it's all about the amount of, uh, it's Ohm's law, like the inverse relationship, like physics 101, inverse relationship between current and resistance. It's measuring how much effort, essentially, how much current needs to go through the drill in order to go through bone. And then as soon as the drill bit breaks through the bone, no matter what that material is, that lack of resistance against the drill bit is a very stark difference. Hmm. So whether it's tissue or space, 
And again, that does not apply to the cartilage because the drill bit is still in some bone, even when it's going through the cartilage. So, and you could see, I, I didn't even think about timing this, but that, that was just a few second procedure as opposed to 15 minutes, 15 yeah. to 20. Wow. Yeah. And that's 15 to 20 minutes that someone's, you know, brain is swelling on the table. So it makes a big difference. So it, it you know, we, we've seen the demo now. It makes sense. Everything you said makes sense. Uh, it seems like a logical next step in the process of, of neurosurgeons. Is it easy to sell? How are you getting in front of people? Like it's, you, you know, I think it sounds like you want this to become, you know, a, a, a big standard business. Yeah, standard of care. And uh, like, is, is that, is it for sale now? Like how, how does that whole process go? And you say, hey, look, we got it. Like we can do this. Yeah, it is not for sale. Um, so we have to get FDA clearance. Mm. Yeah, we I wanted to get into all that. Sure. Well. Um, we can dive into as many details as you want or lack thereof. We are what's called a class two 510K device, which is our regulatory pathway. Um, essentially, we need to submit an application called a 510K proposal. And then that's kind of it. And then we hear back from the FDA. They probably ask us some questions. We clarify some things. They might ask for additional testing. They might not. And then we get cleared. And we actually submitted our 510k proposal a few weeks ago, which is super exciting. We are going to hear back from the FDA by October 8th um, if they have any questions. And they gave us a estimated date of clearance of November 7th. And is, is that normal that you would get a, uh, an estimated? The... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Once you submit it, they give you a timeline. Granted, they don't have to meet that deadline. They're allowed to do whatever they want. Um, hmm. So it could be later. It, like, it could be into January or February um, if they just if they just take longer. Um, but and then, um, we're getting there. <laughs> one, and so we're, we're optimistic people on the show that everything's going to go through swimmingly and that you're going to get cleared. And then is everything good to go uh, for you to then start selling or is there another yep. hurdle thereafter? Um, no, we can start selling. Um, we, it's important to note that definitely not now, but even after we get FDA cleared, um, we are, we're getting FDA cleared based on um, equivalence. So we just want the FDA to tell us that we are no more dangerous than the current standard of care. So the one thing that we'll have to do is do additional post-market clinical trials and get data to show that we're not just as safe as the hand crank, we're actually safer. Um, so we can't use any of that um, language until we submit additional information to the FDA and get that additional clearance. Are you able to put together kind of a, a contact list of people at this point and start you know, selling them for something that's about to come out? Or is that against regulation? Like, do you, are you able to start that, that aspect now? Or do you have to wait until you? We are, um, we are allowed to let people know that we exist and that we are FDA clearance pending. Hmm. Um, and as I've mentioned, we've talked to hundreds of neurosurgeons. Those are our buyers. Um, 
so yeah, we're, we're able to start getting our word out there um, and say we are not cleared for sale whatsoever, but we might be soon. <laughs> what's Hubbly stand for? Or what, what, what's the name behind Hubbly? We originally had a guide hub, which was an accessory to this drill. So originally, um, in order to help stabilize drilling, we had, it was like a, it's silly, not, not silly, but straightforward. There was this hub that you would just adjust mechanically at the right angle, and then just, you would drill through it. And then once you're done drilling, whatever you're sticking in the brain, usually a catheter, you could also use that to make sure the catheter was the right angle. Um, what ended up happening was, after our initial prototyping and testing with users, they said that because this was battery powered and just like the shape and ergonomics of it were, it, it was already so much more stable than the hand crank drill that they were like, I'm not even going to use this guide hub. Like this is steady. This drills with the correct angle. So I'm not going to use that thing. Um, so anyway, the, the name came from guide hub, Hubly. Um, we still plan on having some kind of stabilization device and accessory that we're going to put in the kit with this drill. Um, but that's a few months up. That's, our R&D team is working on it. There, there might be some ultrasound. We're, we're figuring out how to make it so that um, it's essential to the procedure in a way that surgeons would actually use it. It's cool stuff. I mean, it's really, I don't know what, what, when I, as I sit here and I listen to the complexity of this is just not your average venture that one starts up and so I, I applaud That's you. way more fun. <laughs> I will. I applaud you. I mean, it just for continuing to take challenge after challenge after challenge. A lot, I mean, just to be really frank, uh, a lot of people here, in this area where, uh, you know, they say that there's not a lot of uh, opportunity, that there's not a lot of funding. And, and, and to, some, to some extent, that is true. However, I think that if you are solving, if, you, if you're solving the right problem and you have the right solution for that problem, then th that's one of the first things that's needed. And you're from out of state coming to Virginia because of the opportunity that's here. So like, how did cool? you, yeah, I mean, it's just, so it's just like for some people in this area, I'm like, well, while you're sitting here complaining about lack of opportunity, we have Casey here that's taking advantage of the same thing that you are saying that is not existent. How did you, so you're, the reason you're, you're here is because of 757 Accelerate. Um, how did you find out about 757 Accelerate and, and what do you hope to gain from your time in this cohort? Um, well, maybe this is cheating. I actually am from Virginia, but not from this area. Um, I'm from Northern Virginia, uh, went to school in Chicago, um, and then our company based out there. Um, but I heard about 757 through the DC startup ecosystem, which I was familiar with just from being from around there. Um, and what I hope to gain out of the program is basically learning how to transition from an R&D company to a commercialized product launch. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a huge change for us. As I said, like if, if we get cleared November 7th, um, 
we we have a lot <laughs> we have a lot to do um so and uh, one thing that i think norfolk virginia beach is really good at is like supply chain logistics management a lot of mm-hmm. um like legacy industry around here and a lot of expertise um but there's also a ton of um like dod and funding for healthcare companies um there's like i mean obviously there's hospitals here there's hospitals everywhere um but i feel like that's it's like the perfect trifecta of everything that we need to have a successful launch. Wow. So I'm interested, like, how do you vet that? Right. So as you're applying potentially to different programs across the the country, the world, like how how do you, how do you look at it and say, okay, well, you just said there's a lot of hospitals everywhere. Right. So, so why not go to Cheyenne, Wyoming or something like that? Like what, what are you, what are you doing in your vetting process to figure out that, that the programs that you're looking at actually can facilitate that to actually help you get to that next step? Um, this, this is not that dissimilar from what you guys were talking about in the beginning. Um, the biggest thing is kind of testimonial. So I happen to know a founder who went through this program last year. Um, her name's Rachel. I really trust her. She's awesome. And she really sang the praises of 757. Um, the other thing is that they give non-dilutive funding, which is insane. Um, sometimes it's, there are programs that are a little predatory where they take a ton of equity that's not really fair for the valuation of our company. In this case, they're not taking anything. It is all give and the get is, I guess, like through mentorship or whatever, you know, learning from us. Um, So yeah, so that's really cool. Uh, The other thing I liked about the program, as I said, like the kind of expertise, and mentor network that they have in this area is like insanely extensive. Um, I like that the program is really small. There's only seven companies. And so they really cater all of the curriculum and opportunities to the actual needs of the founders, which is great. And you've raised a little bit of money. So uh, there's a press release uh, article that, you closed a $1.3 million pre-seed. Have you raised any money on top of that or is uh, you holding strong with the, with that initial pre-seed round? <laughs> um, we've also gotten like $400,000 in non-dilutive funding um, from oh, wow. competitions, government grants. And we have been holding strong on that pre-seed round. We just announced our, our latest funding raise. Um, just now like two weeks ago um so we're, we're now fundraising again and that's a that's a different kind of fundraising uh, just in the sense of uh because anytime you bring in like fda and medical devices it's it, stuff like that it just to get into market generally takes a little bit longer um yeah and then in november that being your magic date i would imagine that probably some of the questions that investors uh, are coming back with is if they knew the answer to that, if they saw the crystal ball, they would be like much more apt to, to write that check. I mean, is how have you compared fundraising with other founders in terms of uh, their experience and, and have you found it a lot more difficult or is it kind of what you expected because you, you have to go to investors that are used to writing checks in the medical device field. So they understand that the time to go to market is going to take a little bit longer. It was much harder. I, I, I have not done a non-med tech company, so I'm just guessing, but I, 
it, it seems like I had a much harder time fundraising than my friends um, at the beginning, but now it's much easier. Because <laughs> um, with medical devices, it, again, it's just like a totally weird world where once you have FDA clearance, odds are really good that you're going to be able to have some kind of acquisition because um, it's just so rare to get to that point. Um, so at the very beginning, when we didn't have a totally clear line of sight to regulatory clearance, it fundraising sucks. <laughs> I won't, will not sugarcoat it. Um, but now, I mean, we submitted to the FDA. They gave us a date. Um, it's, it's much better. <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I'm interested in... Um, uh, when we were we were going back and forth a little bit on Twitter before the show, and uh, your your Twitter name, not necessarily your handle, but your Twitter name being Brain Drill Girl, <laughs> what is this? It, is that a self imposed name, or was that just so you just became labeled as that, uh, and, and it stuck? Yeah. Well, it's a bit of a misnomer because we are technically us skull drill <laughs> we do not drill into the brain so we we should be like the non-brain that's like our whole shtick is that we don't drill into the brain right um ideally um but no that was totally other people just called me brain drill girl every everywhere i went like any kind of pitch competition conference if people saw me online they'd be like oh you're that brain drill girl right <laughs> well you know and it's funny that you say that because um I teach a lot of pitch classes and, and Zach is very, very familiar with that as well. But, but one of the things that we tell everybody that when they pitch at competitions is that you are going to get a nickname. Someone is going to you. You're just going to get labeled as something. So be sure to practice. Be sure to have a great performance because when you're remembered, you know, that it's going to stick with you. And now you being the, the brain drill girl, uh, yeah, that you can definitely use that to your advantage now, because I mean, some people work really, really hard to be identified and remembered as something. So that's uh, oh, totally no, it's great. It's like a what's your pitch. nickname, Tim? Well, I don't have a nickname, but when Best I saw on Twitter, not that you know of, yeah, maybe that yeah, means not that I know of, thing. right? Right. But <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know if you noticed, though, Zach, on Twitter that uh, Casey's Twitter name is, is Brain Drill. I Girl, know. So uh, I noticed that. I like that. I mean, play with it, right? I mean, if right. it's to you use know, it to your if, advantage. Yeah, exactly. I think yeah, that probably helps, right? I mean, it's probably, yeah. It's memorable. And that's the key to everything. Boy, you played Ooh. right into Zach's hand right there. I'm not going <laughs> to do anything. Oh, but this means I'm trustworthy. I don't know if you knew that. I learned that last week, seven days ago. Um, I'm interested in a scenario or a time that you're going through the business and uh, did you ever think about quitting? Was there like a scenario where things got really, really tough? Were you like, I, I don't want to do this anymore? Um, uh, a, a negative side of, of, of the business that maybe you don't normally talk about. It, has there been a lot of those? Is there any in particular that maybe kept you up at night a lot? Um, yes. There was one um, moment in particular where, so I went full-time um, in December of 2019. So it's been almost three years now, which is crazy. But I went full-time in December of 2019. You may or may not be aware the pandemic happened like a few months after that. Um, and that was 
right around the time when we had been planning to raise our first round was in like May of 2020. Um, so the pandemic hit and my co-founder and I decided, okay, maybe let's like wait a few months and let's let people get used to the new normal. Um, and then we'll, we'll just kind of have to slow down progress a teeny bit um, and like try to apply for grants and then continue. So we were kind of running out of money, um, but there's only two of us and we weren't really taking salaries. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, so we spent 2020, my co-founder, Tyler, my CTO, he built up the product to a point where it was like ready to do show and tell with investors. Um, September, 2020 came around and I was like, okay, now's the time we absolutely, we need more money to continue. And so I pitched 50 investors in a row and number three wrote a 25K check, number six wrote a 25K check, and then I got 44 no's in a row. And at that point, it wasn't like I gave up, it was that I ran out of investors. Like I, I did not know who else to pitch at that point. Like that was like the extent of my network. Um, and so I went back to all of those no's um, and asked them for feedback. And of course, part of it was like COVID, weird financial times, but a big part of it that I hadn't thought of was that our COGS, our cost of goods and services to make our drill were too high. And they thought that our margin was too low for our price point for a medical drill. Mm. Um, and so Tyler and I sat down and we were like, look, we just, we can't fundraise, we can't move forward. Um, what do we do? And we decided to basically listen to that feedback from those investors. It was a super hard decision and it was a bummer. Um, but we just basically completely scrapped that design of the drill that Tyler had just spent the last year working on. And Tyler and I started from scratch um, and came up with a whole, you know, number 10 method of doing this auto stop, which mm. ended up working really well. Um, I mean, it worked 100% of the time in all of our like hundreds and hundreds of internal studies. Um, and very importantly, it had a way, way lower uh, cost to produce. And so Tyler is like a beast. It took him three months to do what he had previously done in a year um, because like, you know, we knew that <laughs> we knew that we had to really move quickly. Um, and on basically very, very little funding, he created a brand new prototype. We went, I went back to all those same investors and I was like, I listened to your feedback. How do you like us now? And then a bunch of them invested and it's been kind of. Wow. Uh, How many people do you know, Tim, like that? that don't even ask why, you know, like I feel, I feel like that. Yeah. I, and that can be with anything, right? Like whether it's trying to raise money from someone, whether it's running and trying to figure out why you're not getting faster, why, uh, why a girl won't go on a date with you. Like it could be literally everything. You just, a lot of people get the no, maybe they even build up enough courage to ask the question. Then they get the answer they don't want. And then they're like, all right, I'm done. And so taking it that next step, it sounds like not only did you uh, improve your chances with those investors throughout time to, to build more trust with you, but sounds like they might've been right and you built a better product because of it. And oh, totally. I, I think so many people won't do that and they'll just complain about, oh, uh, everyone hates me. No one wants to do this thing, whatever, yada, yada, yada. And it's like that, you just saying that is just 
I, I think more people need to hear that and more people need to do that. It's just like, yo, this isn't yeah. ever going to be super easy. And getting a no is, I asked Damon John Afubu, the guy who turned a pair of jeans into a $20 billion business. What do you do when you hear uh, no in business? And he goes, a no is an absolute maybe. You, you have to go and take it to that next step to learn from that. And, and you did, and I appreciate that. Well, I also learned if you ask someone, why don't you want to invest? They always say, it's just not the right time for me. Always. That's right. always the answer. And at the time, it was the pandemic. But I mean, who knows how honest? I don't know. I have no way of knowing. But then when I said, okay, if you're not allowed to give me that answer, if you have to give me a criticism of my business, what would it be? Um, and then they told me about the COGS margin thing. And thank God they did, because we're a way better company as a result. So is 10 the magic that. number? Hmm? Is 10 the magic number in terms of the number of prototypes you had to develop? We didn't develop all 10. Um, we developed, I think, three total. We had our first. Oh, okay. I, I, I thought I heard his name, Tyler. Ideas. Got it. Okay. Like we have three, and by, well, we have like thousands of prototypes. But in terms of like which method of auto stop, we developed like three different proof of concept MVPs. Hmm. What I'm curious. So when you have, when you go through a string of that many no's in a row, what do you, what do you do to clear your head, relax, get back into that, that positive zone? <laughs> um, actually <laughs> funny that you say that. Um, so that was, that was fall, at the very end of 2020. Um, what I did because I'm a huge nerd was I enrolled in a part-time one class at a time graduate program. <laughs> so is that, is that well, what you do for stress yeah. release? Yeah. Yeah. I take math classes. For, I mean, unironically, yes, because I felt like I had been, I was like, I am failing at my job and my startup for the whole past year had been my entire, I mean, I'm not, I don't have kids. Like that was like my entire life. Um, and so I felt like all of my self-worth was based off of whether I had a good day or a bad day with the company. Mm -hmm. And after I had a ring of bad days, um, I was like, I need to do something where I feel like I'm learning and progressing. And I feel like I can be good at something. I needed something else to value my self-worth off of that was not my company. Um, and so I'm now getting a master's in applied math at Hopkins. One, one class at a time, nights and weekends, um, and it's awesome because it's like I get an A on a homework assignment. And even if I had a really bad investor meeting, I'm like, well, at least I'm still good at school. <laughs> well, I, thought, and that's, I thought you would have gone scuba diving or something, but I I, I, I actually, I do. Yeah. Well, I do that too, but that's a little bit more expensive and you have to take a week off work. So sometimes it's bad <laughs> for the company. <laughs> where's your, uh, where's the, the, your favorite place that you've went scuba diving? Um, I have been back to this one resort in Roatan, Honduras three times i love it it the water's super warm i like i dive without a wetsuit just like in my my bathing suit and there's dolphins and sharks and turtles and manta rays how low can you go um i think deepest i've gone is maybe like 140 um you don't really so need, your ears you don't pop. how do you how do you get your ears to not pop um, really the only danger is in the first 33 feet. Um, if you get your ears to equalize after the first atmosphere, then it's much easier going down from there. So what, what do you do to do that? 
Because, I mean, I go to the bottom of my, my in-laws pool and it's six feet and they start to go. Uh, yeah, you put your uh, fingers on your nose and then you blow. Um, the other thing you can do is sometimes you have like liquid trapped in your ear. So if you like move your head around, like while underwater, circles, then that? you can get, yeah, you can get like air bubbles that are trapped in your ear canal to like release. I'm going under 33 feet. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, the reason I say it is I was in Aruba a few years ago. This actually probably five years ago. And there was a boat probably 60 feet down. I can hold my breath for probably two, three minutes. I'm a d- decent swimmer. And I tried going as low as I could, and I just couldn't get out of the, the ear zone. And um, I don't know that I would have made it to the boat. I probably, that, that's a ridiculous thought. But um, I could have gotten closer. Um, so I'm going to use that tip. Thank you. Yeah, you got to just blow through your nose. It's like if you're on an airplane, you can try humming too to like try to, try to get your ears equalized. I hate flying. What are you going to do? Well, so what's what's next in terms of uh, November is going to be a great month. I can feel it. You're going to it's going to be a great month for you. That's when everything wraps up with the accelerator program. You're going to have your approval. Um, what well, we'll see. Hopefully. Positive. We have positive. This is the po- positive vibe environment where everything's going to be great. What's <laughs> I I would assume that you're preparing right now in terms of like charting everything out in terms of these are the things we have to have in place when everything is great in the off chance, super, super small off chance. You have to go back and submit additional stuff to the FDA. I'm sure that you're working those plans as well, but I'm assuming that that probably is that taking up a lot of your time right now, just making sure that you can hit the ground running uh, come November when, um, when the gates open, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, our contract manufacturer is in Colorado out of Boulder. Um, and so they're, they're ready to go. They know how to do it. I mean, they've already made hundreds of units for us for testing. Um, but we've been ordering our raw materials, um, making sure that's all set up. We are going, we're exhibiting at a conference in San Francisco um, at the beginning of October and kind of just letting all of the physicians and also the Medtronic Striker, J&J of the world, you know, letting them know that we exist and we're coming. Um, yeah. Have you received <laughs> any feedback from some of the big players, some of the big hardware providers? Um, because I mean, like you're disrupting something that's been in place for by the looks of it, a really, really long time since the first time that anyone decided to ever go through a skull. Um, I mean, that's a big, big disruption. So, I mean, is there, have you experienced anyone trying to, throw shade your way because they don't want to lose the market share that you're ultimately going to take away. This is another reason that medical devices are a very interesting market because our biggest competitors are also our potential acquirers. Um, Mm -hmm. Short answer is that yes, I have gotten feedback and I have NDAs in place. So it's all confidential. (laughs) Is that an easy decision to make though? Like if, if they, someone comes to you and says, Hey, we want to buy you. Like, is that, do you think that'll be an easy decision to make? No. Well, I just <laughs> think that, but I think that there's also an aspect that you need to think about it from the other side as well. Like think about how many patents that uh, an Exxon mobile purchased because there, it's not in their best interest to improve 
miles per gallon for a car. They just buy the buy the company, buy the patent, throw it in the uh, drawer, lock it, never look at it again. Well, that would be my biggest nightmare. Yeah. That's, well, so that that's really what it comes down to is I, you know, I guess as cheesy as it sounds, like we really are patient centered, and the goal is just to make this procedure safer. Um, and so whether we do that with a partner who has the kind of global scale to put this in every hospital, um, I mean, that, that is awesome. Or whether we have to do it on our own for a while first to um, make sure that we've proven that this is a very commercially viable product that no one would want to show. Um, so whether it's either of those two options, um, we... I. I don't care so much. I just want to make sure that this is something that's actually used for decades until something better comes along. Is there anything Century, you want... in the case of the hand crank drill? Is there anything that you that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? Hmm. Um. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you guys covered everything. Um. Yeah. I just everyone's welcome to check out our website. We are not, obviously, we're not allowed to sell, but also you probably would not want to just buy a drill to have in your house anyway. Can, you, um, can folks uh, go to the site and sign up for uh, updates uh, to a newsletter of some kind so that absolutely. they can receive notification? Yes, of course. Yep. Uh, we send out um, typically quarterly, like mass email updates to everyone who signs up, monthly investor updates for those more in the know. But uh yeah, no, people should totally do that. Follow us on social media. We're pretty active on uh, everything. LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And also check out 757 because they are absolutely awesome. Well, I certainly applaud you. I mean, you are, uh, I mean, it's just for someone to have the courage to disrupt something that has been in place for so long and really almost blindly doing that and, and making it safer and better is, is super. I applaud you for that. And I wish you all the success uh, that you ever dreamed of and more. Well, thank you very much. And thanks so much for having me. This has been super fun. Cheers. Thanks, Casey. Bye.